0: Hello, this is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. We are vlogging today. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Vlogging. I'm vlogging you,
1: Justin. I'm I'm into
0: it. (laughs) (laughs) Vlog away. (laughs) This is awesome.
1: It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania.
0: Welcome everybody, I have Justin Thompson who is a dear friend and has been since, actually since he was a little kid, I think I met you at your mom and dad's house when you were on a trampoline and you were carrying a video camera, I don't know how old you are, I think maybe you were 8 or 9 or 10 and you were you had a video camera in your hand and you were jumping on the trampoline doing flips and recording the video to see what it was going to look like. And... All these years later, I don't think you've changed, have you?
1: <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I still like jump, jumping on trampolines. Uh, so, and, uh, yeah.
0: Let's just start and have you take a trip down memory lane and tell us what countries you've been in in the last year or two. Can you think? I mean, you can rattle them uh-huh. off. There's probably about twenty of them. <laughs>
1: there's certainly quite a few um, I, Like off the top of my head uh, India, Italy, Portugal uh, the UK Sweden, Germany um, France Bali the United States Thailand I'm trying to think that's what I can think of off the top of
0: my head <laughs> So, how many frequent flyer miles do you have?
1: <laughs> um, it's oh, never, wow. a, it's never enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: never enough.
1: <laughs> I just love collecting.
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, Justin, I'm. I really, I love watching the work that you're doing, and um, it's it's pretty amazing. So let's start out though. There's a company you've been involved with for a while called Moscow Misfits. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So Moscow Misfits is uh, a collective of originally friends. Um, we, despite the name, we were, we, most of us got to know each other in London. Some of the partners in the group are from Russia, um, or grew up in Moscow. Um, and a couple of years ago, uh, we all decided to embark on this crazy adventure to shoot a feature film, um, an independent feature film in Russia. And, uh, we, uh, decided this film was going to be filmed in the, in the Arctic circle, um, in Northern Russia, uh, near Murmansk. And, uh, originally we went to the the traditional production and and film partners in Russia that one would go to. And they, they're a handful. They're all very expensive and they are all very set in their ways. Like you can only do this, you can't do that. And um, we're a very uh, spirited and entrepreneurial group of individuals and decided, hey, let's try and do this on our own. Let's go. Let's go the hardcore route. Um, And so we made this film and um, and then interestingly enough, uh, uh, like after we we had made the film, uh, done principal photography and we're in post production, we met with. Um, the Moscow Film Commission and and some people, and we're showing them the material that we've done. And they said, oh, great. Who is your partner? Or one of the big, uh, one of the big film producers. And we said, no, we did it ourselves. And everybody was astounded. They're like, you guys did all of this yourselves. And we said, yeah. And what we then further realized is that um, the CIS, the, you know, the the uh, Russian Federation and, and, and other Russian-speaking countries, they all have an incredible independent film community, but it's very scattered and there's nothing that really brings them together. Um, So then we decided we would start this festival, um, which was called FML 48. And it was the first 48 hour film festival ever created in Russia to foster the independent film community um, who, where there would normally be a barrier to entry because of these, you know, Traditional stayed film groups that like to retain their power, um, like oh, that doesn't video.
0: happen in our business. Yeah, never, never happens. <laughs> that never uh, happens in our business.
1: We, we wanted to create this festival that allowed the community to connect. Ultimately, because we also um, for the for the award, we uh, during the awards, then we had a uh, two day kind of symposium where. Um, really top uh, film people from Russia and from outside of Russia came and spoke to filmmakers. And it was just a, a gen generally create an organic, authentic community so that everybody could connect from that. And that's something that we want to bring more into the region. Um, so that's where it kind of, that's the long, the long version of Moscow Misfits. Um, and then with that, we also decided, well, let's, Uh, we not just stay in Russia, but we have access to really great filmmakers and content creators in general. Um, so let's bring them together and create a platform where we can then, um, you know, allow their talents to come to fruition, uh, in partnership.
0: Okay. We're going to come back to the Russian film Aquitalist shortly, but before we go there, I wanna I want you specifically to tell people about a couple of the other projects. So there's one that was thirty five thousand feet in the air. For yes. was that for Lufthansa? What was that? Uh,
1: so one of the things that we find kind of crucial um, for the future of entertainment is immersive experiences. Uh, I think film will always be film and television will always be television. Very entertaining, something really wonderful to enjoy. But we spend so much of our time looking at a screen, whether it's a computer monitor, especially now, or a handheld device or whatever it is, uh, going to the movie theater or looking at these screens. And something that I think humanity really craves is human interaction and connection and touching and feeling and maybe having comfort zones pushed. And um, so we feel that, immersive entertainment is really the future and i think the industry in general a lot of uh, it's very much the, the direction that it's going um so we've worked with um, a very talented uh artist named sean Rogg, who created the waldorf project and the waldorf project is probably one of the most cutting edge Immersive experiences out there. There's some very good ones like Sleep No More or Punch Drunk or um, uh, Secret Cinema, but they tend to be very surface entertainment, um, very well done, incredibly well produced, um, but not pushing human interaction and connection. And Waldorf Project is at the cutting edge of that. Um, and a, a lot of people. are when they go through the experience, there's the traditional show, which is like a three-hour to four-hour show, um, and is very intense, very emotionally and physically intense, um, and pushes people's uh, boundaries. But what we're doing is a lot of empathy engineering and emotional hacking, essentially. We're creating empathy within these groups that go and experience the shows. Um, so and how are you
0: doing that? Can you be specific so, about that?
1: So I, I I can't. It's one of the I can't get too specific because it's a little bit of of uh, getting people into I'll say getting people into a specific mindset, taking okay. them out of their comfort zone is crucial. Okay. Right. And then there are a lot of layers and subtle things that occur from the very first. Connection that we have with the participant before they even come. It's a lot of very subliminal um, messaging and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of uh, my great partners and friends, Vlad uh, Gorbanzov, he, he said, there's this incredible artist, uh, Sean, who's doing these things, I think we, we should look at him and say, wow, it's, we went and experienced it, we thought it's pretty cutting edge, it's fantastic. Um, let's try to bring this experience to the right wider world. And so we have then been taking, um, uh, when we've been approached for certain subjects, like uh, we wonder fruit came to us and said, Hey, you know, what, what do you think we should do? We said, okay, um, there's this amazing experience. Why don't we, instead of trying to connect 50 people at a time, why don't we try to connect 5,000 people in the jungles of Thailand At their festival and um, they were very uh, kind and they they took the risk and they said okay let's bring the show and we were the final performance for the entire festival and we anticipated that maybe you know 1500 to 2000 people would stay at the very end of the festival and come experience it Um, but we had a lot of messaging that kind of went throughout the festival to get people into the correct mindset and ultimately, we had about 5,000 people, which is almost the entire audience of of Wonderfruit stay for the festival for the closing piece. And we shut down the entire festival. It was it was pretty impressive the entire thing. Um, and we're just doing a film now, which we'll be releasing a, a documentary on that entire process.
0: Justin, for people who don't know, can you take a step back for a second and explain sure. what Wonderfruit is? What is it? And who goes? Uh,
1: so, Wonder Fruit is a festival in Thailand. Um, it's a fantastic uh, music, arts, and culinary um, festival. Okay. And they do it uh, outside of Bangkok um, on this beautiful, beautiful jungle property. Um, and it's probably the biggest festival of its kind in Asia. Um, it, it's a lot of people who, it's a little bit like Burning Man, but I think. Not quite because it's more sophisticated and it's not quite as, as um, difficult an environment to be in.
0: I was going to uh, say, there's a lot more plants <laughs> and less dust.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: exactly. <laughs> but a lot more water probably, right? Yes,
1: a very, lot more. Very scenery. hot
0: and humid. So how did you get involved with this? And then I want to come back to exactly what was happening. How did you take me to the beginning of Wonder Fruit? How did you end up in Thailand working on this huge immersive project?
1: Uh, So the the creator of Wonder Fruit um, uh, was somebody who, uh, you know, uh, was a a kind of a friend of the group. And um, he said, you know, and kind of was knew the things that we were working on and and said, okay what, you know, what's something we're just shooting ideas back and forth. What could happen? And ultimately this came came about. Um, and that's and how then, things
0: happen, isn't it? And in, in in what we do, we move in tribes. It's always with people that we know and trust, and who move along through life with us. And uh, I, you know, with what's happening now with all the quarantine around the world, I'm seeing those connections happening virtually again. It's kind of nice, but. I'm remembering all the physical connections. And so this is kind of bringing me back to the good old days a couple of months ago <laughs> when we actually had contact with people. But anyway, so, okay, so you knew the group. They knew your work, which has been unbelievable. You end up in Thailand. You think there's only going to be maybe 1,000, 1,500 people, and you've got 5,000 people at the end of Wonderfruit. What are these people seeing? What are you doing that's keeping them there?
1: uh we had messaging that um originally we had this communication that we were they had an app and it was going to be communicated to all the participants that were at at wonder fruit that you know these were the things that were going to happen at this time and where you needed to be and all that but unfortunately the app crashed and so it wasn't we knew at that point it wasn't a reliable um form to to communicate and to get the message out that we were going to you know, have this performance at the end and try to keep people there. So uh, we ended up doing voiceover, uh, specifically I ended up doing voiceover. Um, and, and it was perfect because in the middle of Wonderfruit, there happened to be an art installation called The Silent Room. And it's a giant <laughs> 40-foot container that's completely padded. As if it's a sound stage. <laughs> um, and we said, can we for use your it? For a
0: nervous breakdown, right? Yeah, can we use it for an producing hour this while this some the recording? <laughs> We're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. You're producing this and the app is crashing, right? Oh my God. Exactly. Gosh.
1: And so, so then we recorded it and then we um, came up with uh, visual text and audible that, that went along with the audible messaging um, on all the main stages and they happened at different times. So, you know, it would say in 36 hours, uh, the Waldorf project will begin at the main stage, you know, uh, things like that. Right. Uh, which, uh, if, if when, when the documentary comes out, you'll see all of this in great detail. Um, the, 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 mental, uh, breakdowns that, that, uh, or not, it wasn't really actually, I have to say it was never really a breakdown. That's, one of the crucial things you about
0: do working that. with a good team. You don't do that, Justin. I've seen you. You have handled emergency situations on some of my projects. You do not panic. You, you're like one of these people, and this is why you're so valuable as a producer. You're one of these people that looks around, all hell's breaking loose, all around you. And, you know, it's Murphy's Law. If something's going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong in the middle of the shoot or in the middle of the live performance or whatever you're doing. But you... I think I saw a picture of you at Wonder Fruit. Oh, and there's a little fly in here. I saw a picture of you. (laughs) Human connection, almost. Yeah, oh my God. It's the fly. Now, uh, I saw a picture of you in the middle of Wonder Fruit, and you're standing there with people all around you, and you've got this stern look on your face. I think that was from Wonder Fruit, right? Was Uh, that from Wonder Fruit? And you're in the middle of solving this problem anyway, so that silent room was was available. And then what happened? (laughs) Yeah. And it
1: was, um, uh, so we were able to get the message out to people Mm -hmm. that knew that it was happening, but we had various things as, as happens with production. Like, you know, um, we didn't have as many volunteers as we were told that we were going to have, we were supposed Mm -hmm. to have somewhere around, I think a hundred or 150 and something like 30 showed up um and then uh the organizers were really amazing and managed to to um to bring in people but only on the day of the performance so we have to train them all in a super elaborate because we had this we had this grid system that was painted it was you know i think uh, three kilometers of white lines all painted in a very specific grid and then each then Uh, uh, 50 people at a time would be placed into each triangle in the grid and that's really the only way that we're going to make it work and so we had to essentially so we decided to train the 30 that did come the the, the days before and they were essentially leaders Mm -hmm. and they then uh, guided the other volunteers that came and kind of showed them how to do everything and so it was delegating the process down but the uh, one of the big problems that we had was I knew that for um, uh, the organizers, one of the crucial things is that there was no light anywhere on the entire festival, that the only light that existed was going to be at the main stage where the performance was going to happen. And, um, and the plan was that all the, all of the uh, vendors and stage managers, they were all on a WhatsApp group and they all knew that that there was a message sent out that this was going to happen. However, I knew never to rely just on that. So I spent um, a couple of hours on a scooter just going to every single food vendor, every stage manager, every buddy that I could think of that that had any control over a light source and told them to remind them that this is going to happen at this time and you will have to do it. And surprisingly, the majority of the people knew about it and were, were on board, some didn't. And then, we had uh, a a very large group of our volunteers essentially create a ring of fire and they came and they walked from the very end of the festival and they just kind of herded essentially festival goers, stragglers and things like that towards the main stage. And then slowly lights were going off and different lights were, 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 were shutting down. And I ran the entire uh, pretty much festival ground um, going to any vendor that didn't turn off their light and say, you know, now you have to turn your light off. And the thing is, as the, the festival was getting light, any, any, as it was getting darker, any light source was essentially, they're like moths to it. Right. Right. And so vendor is thinking, this is great. I'm getting all this food. All these people are coming and all this thing. And so I would tell them, I was like, unfortunately the, the light has to go off. And some, most of them complied. Some of them I had to go back and literally unscrew their light bulbs so that the lights were going on. Oh my gosh. Um, and and then the the other one was the DJs who were, of course, having killer sets and it's the greatest time. And they're going over their set time because uh, you know, there's more and more people coming to it. So they're thinking it's really great. And and you know, the stage managers going to them and saying, Hey, you have to turn off they're like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they keep going. And then eventually it got to a point where I said, Cut it now. And the stage managers, literally pulled the plug and just the music just totally shut off <laughs> and the DJs just the frustration in their eyes, but it was all agreed upon. This was part of the process. So yeah. then slowly, everybody's going towards the main stage. I even got the police and medical department to shut off their lights. Um, Are you so serious? That it, so the whole <laughs> festival was in complete darkness. Um, and uh, as I come back to the stage, I see that everybody is assuming they don't know what's going to happen. They assume that it's a performance that's going to happen on the main stage. So they're all just remaining clumped at the front and the volunteers aren't, are having difficulty getting them to like disperse into the wider grid area. And so eventually uh, and in my earpiece over the microphone, I hear like Sean, the artist is like screaming. He's like, you know, we need to solve this. We need to solve it. And he's, you know, having a little bit of a panic attack. Um, then eventually what I did is I, I, uh, uh, oh, and this was the other part was because so many people had congregated and the grass was dry and kind of had died. The grid system had been trampled on. So one couldn't oh, no. find the lines were to build. And the first thing is we had to start one triangle and then build out from it. And so the volunteers who we had in a row at the front of the stage, they're all looking at me and they and they come to me and we're like, we can't find the lines. And I said, okay, um, follow me. And I, I knew where the lines approximately were supposed to be because I'd been living this grid for the last few days. And so I forced my way through the crowd and just spread people apart. And I, that created the very first line. And from that, everybody could then start to build the lines out of, out of that line. And then, but still everybody was kind of remaining clumped in the center. And so I just forced my way to the center of that area and I grabbed somebody's hand and I, I talked to them and I said, grab the, grab the person next to you, grab their hand now and hold on to it and follow me and tell them to do the same. And so it just went down this daisy chain and I ended up just pulling back and I'm pulling and I'm assuming I'm going to take maybe five, 10 people. And at one point I look back and there's about a hundred people in this chain that I'm like bringing out to the far reaches of the grid system. And from that, we were able then to have the entire grid system almost the way that we wanted it. Um, And it was fantastic. It it was really a, a very, very powerful moment. It was it was incredible. We filmed an enti- we had a whole film crew that that filmed it as well, um, and some really incredible uh, overhead uh, drone shots of this grid system developing. Um, it, was, it was very very powerful, and it was very nice. It was the Waldorf project is as I said, it's a cutting edge immersive experience. It pushes people's physical and emotional boundaries, and um, people came to me. Uh, You know some some people don't like it or don't understand it. That's perfectly. Okay, but the majority uh, Were people who came and said that was incredible some people came and said I was crying I don't know why I was crying, but it was just such an incredible emotional experience and That those are the moments those are the things why we do all of this to have those results
0: Well, You are at that point with what you're doing. You're connecting the dots of the human psyche from person to person to person. And when you connect people's hearts together, that's an incredible emotional experience. And some people, even though they may say, I didn't get it years later, they're going to remember that. And it will come up when it's the right time for them to remember that. I just think, I think that's awesome. And what you're talking about here for people who are watching this is a typical moment when a producer <laughs> is in the middle of something and everything starts to fall apart and you have somebody who knows how to fix it. That's really what you look for in, in a good producer. And I've seen you do that over and over and over again. Can you talk about oh, the I, one had that, I had a great teacher? <laughs> you. <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's I think it's fun fixing the problems. You know, it's interesting because when everything goes really, really smoothly, it's great, but the the ones you remember. The most are the ones that were difficult and the ones where you had to fix something, you know, like like hurricanes in the Bahamas when you have to literally circle the production trailers together on the movie Flipper and and board the windows so that, uh, you know, you can stay alive. Those are the things you remember years later, right? Yeah, I it's, remember it's, the crew in Prague almost missing the flight home because you guys were out all night and the limo was there to take us all to the airport. And and I'm I'm. Uh, yeah, that was scary. But you know what? Those are great memories. Looking back on it. Those are really great memories. Those are those are
1: certainly the ones that, that I remember. <laughs>
0: remember that place we were in the John Malcolm? Not, no, it was uh, Gerard Depardieu re- recommended that really amazing old hotel that the whole crew got to stay. And that was a great shoot. That was on Les Miserables.
1: You you spoiled me a lot um, when I got to got to to work with you as a as a youngster, and, <laughs> and you know I learned I learned a lot how to uh, how to run a production as a family, so that it's never it makes it a lot less stressful mm-hmm. uh, than as opposed to this is a job.
0: Yeah, good vibes and good food. Always have good to have vibes good and food. food. Good food and a good place to stay too. You know, a nice place to stay, good food and good vibes, and you can, you can move mountains. Can you talk about the one that you did uh on the airline? Didn't you do a performance piece of the airlines? Um, yes.
1: So, uh, so I, 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 what we did was um from the Wonderfruit uh festival, which was a, a great success for for Wonderfruit because what they you know, they wanted to ultimately retain as many um, uh, participants at, for the for the entire length of the festival as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, having this kind of um, highlight experience was that they've never had so many people stay until the very end of the festival. So it was uh, we managed to hit the, the the parameters that they wanted. And so f- from that, then we. Um, we're looking to do the show in Berlin, the full show. And while I was uh, talking to find sponsors or you know uh, uh, patrons for this to put on the show in in Berlin, I was talking to Lufthansa and um, I was connected uh, to a really amazing uh, individual uh, named Sissis and Sissis Laos. And Laos, uh, Sissus uh, said, um, you know, I think this is maybe a little bit too cutting edge for Lufthansa, um, um, but I find it fascinating what you're doing. And so I asked, so is what are you doing? And Sisis is um, one of the heads of uh, the Lufthansa's flying lab department, which is kind of their experimental um, arm where they kind of explore what's the future of travel Um, And they do very interesting programming where they kind of do like TED talks in the air where they, you know, have people come panelists and come talk about things on certain flights. And so Sysys was kind of describing the things that they're doing. I said, well, that's pretty awesome. Um, You know, we used a lot of technology and really interesting, like for Wonder Fruit, we had used VR because there was no way for the crew to be in Thailand beforehand to design the space. So we had created the entire um, staging area in virtual reality uh, beforehand in London so that the dancers could practice their movements and we could figure out timing. And when I explained that to Sissus, I like, oh, that's fantastic. Maybe, you know, you and Sean should come talk about that on one of our flights. And so we said, yeah, okay, okay. So then Sean and I got together and I, I and we said, well, that sounds great, but it's kind of boring. So let's <laughs> propose something else to them and see how far it goes. And so we had a conference call with a bunch of the team from Lufthansa and uh, kind of proposed, well, we can give a talk and it'll have a certain impact. But maybe if we can do like a mini performance, it'll have it'll show people exactly what we're talking about, because it's hard to explain. It's really an emotional thing. Mm
0: -hmm. It has to
1: happen in order to understand it. So Lufthansa said, okay. Um, and they flew us to Frankfurt and they gave us an entire Airbus A340 on the tarmac and they said okay Sean and Justin what uh, kind of explain to us and tell us what you think you'd like to do and uh, credit to Sean Sean was like okay we're going to go in really hard and we're going to like go for like the most extreme thing that we could ever want because they're going to say no no to a lot of it and then we'll find some middle ground and I was like, "Yep, yeah, I agree. Let's go for it." So Sean, then we go in, and the you know the whole team from Lufthansa is there, and we explain the whole thing. We go, and Sean's going really hard about our our ultimate desires of what we'd like to do with this aircraft. And um, at the end of it, uh, they all just kind of look at each other, and then they go, "Yeah, I think we can do that." And Sean and I look at each other, we're like, really? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, I think we could uh, we could do that. We, there are a few things we need to see technically, but I think we might be able to do it. And we're like, wow. I mean, huge credit to Lufthansa, who really had um, a team of individuals that were able to, to see and uh, grab a moment to really push the boundaries of of human experience.
0: Right, right.
1: And so they. Uh, one of the things, though, that we found out in our process in our research was that um, you can have a three hundred million dollar aircraft or three hundred fifty, whatever it costs, but the one thing that it doesn't have is an aux in cable for audio. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, like, okay, do we use the, you know, the PA system with a phone that like listens to it and super tinny? And in order to have the experience, you need to have a very strong bass for the music and all of this. And once again, Lufthansa stepped up and said, this is not going to work. So they built in a custom sound system into the aircraft for the performance on the flight so that it could have the resonance and the bass that it needed in order to get people into the emotional state. The, the people on the flight knew that something was going to happen, okay. but they didn't know specifically what was going to happen. Okay. Um, and, um, it was in conjunction with special flight that they were doing from Frankfurt to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest last year. And, um, and we were, uh, most of the other people who were on it, who kind of gave talks or, or, or had things, they, they had about five to 10 minutes. And our entire experience was almost an hour long, um, and it was unbelievable the the amount of effort and the resources that Lufthansa put into our project. We had dinner with the um, head, the chief pilot for Lufthansa. He is, uh, which was an amazing thing to have because he is the final say for anything that comes down to safety, because. If it's any other pilot, there's still one pilot above him who could say, yes, it's safe or not safe to do something. But he was so intrigued by the project, he was like, I want to be a part of it. And so we had all these top uh, individuals, Echelon uh, people at Lufthansa who came and were a part of this Lufthansa flight. It was it was really incredible. And we sat down, we had dinner with them the night before, and he explained all the calculations that go into everything to deal with, with our performance because Um, they had to calculate the amount of fuel, uh, because they may have to, the, the issue with us airspace is you can't have more than two people standing at a time technically, um, for Homeland security reasons. So, um, our performance had more than that because there were the performers and then myself, everybody else was sat down and, uh, so he said, then, depending if it goes a little bit longer, I have to calculate that I may have to fly longer within Canada, and then cut down once you guys are finished.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And we had all these safety procedures, because um, he said, I am not going to, I, under no circumstances do I want to have to turn on the fasten seatbelt sign, because that was the other thing is, one of the things on our plane is we took full control of the lighting system on the whole plane, we controlled every light. And that's, To understand that, these are lights which have not been turned off in decades, essentially, like the no smoking light, uh, the lavatory light, the seatbelt light, having things like that being turned off and controlled is, you know, it was quite a feat. And so he says, I don't want to have to stop the performance under any circumstances, so I will allow it to get quite rough if we hit turbulence. Um, And it will be really down to your performances and performers and you to decide, you know, whether to call it off or not. And, um, and so we had to go through like safety procedures of if turbulence happened, like where we would grab on and we'd essentially have to like crawl ourselves to one of the flight attendants who's strapped in and they would strap their arms and legs over us and hold us into place until the turbulence finished. Um, it was, it was a really pretty spectacular, um, uh, you know, experience to work with Lufthansa and, and that team.
0: So what was the content? What was the story? How many people were in it and what what did you do?
1: A lot of it is um, kind of putting, again, it's putting people audibly into a different state of mind and then uh, pushing their comfort zone and then ultimately finding that moment and that way to find connection, not only between the individual next to you, but between the entire space. And um, it's I, I'm being mildly vague because part of the Waldorf project is that it's a little bit like Fight Club. Um, the first rule of Fight Club is that there is no Fight Club. And most of the people who come and experience it don't share what they what happened to them because they don't want to spoil it for the other participants if one does and, and experience it.
0: Right.
1: But it is one of those things where, you know, um, people go through it and most people are strangers. And and a story came to us where some people had gone through the experience and then they, they didn't know each other and they bumped into each other. uh, Uh, they didn't know each other. They had gone through the Waldorf project together. And then, a year or two years later, they randomly bumped into each other, and they the moment they looked at each other, they just started crying <gasps> and then they they hugged, and it was this it's one of these things It's like if you and I went and did this Serena, we might not know each other, but when we saw each other, we would look at each other in the eye, and we would know that we had done that experience together, and it will forever connect us.
0: Wow. That's wonderful. Aren't you proud of all this?
1: I'm very proud. I mean, I'm, I, you know, a lot of, uh, I love working with very talented individuals. I love being able to have an artist have their, their talent come to fruition. Um, And there's so many people out there that have really a real gift, but they don't necessarily know how to, Connect the dots and make it happen. And as a producer, it it it's pretty. It's a great feeling when all the dots do come together, and you're able to create something that has meaningful impact with your audience.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. So I want to talk to you about Aquatalis. There's some pictures that you sent me that. Well, I've kind of been watching what you were doing for a while, but these pictures are pretty amazing. The first one is. You're in the middle of a snowfield, and you're all in this white gear. You look like you're in the North Pole or something with all this gear on. Whats uh, You know what though, before we even start that, talk to me about Aquautillus and what it's about. What's the story, and who's in it, and how did it come about?:
1: So this, the story of Aquautillus is um, uh, it's about the consciousness of the ocean. Exploring humanity, and we we call it uh, we dubbed a sci-fi docudrama, and the reason it's a sci-fi docudrama, it's a new genre, uh, <laughs> is um, there's a really incredible uh, um, underwater marine biologist. His name is Alexander Semenov, and he uh, has been doing some really incredible research around the world. His primary focus is in um, northern Russia and um and just a real talent vlad who's one of the partners of moscow misfits um knew his you know knew of alexander and thought that he was really somebody special and so one day he was like hey there's this guy he's doing some cool stuff like what can we do let's figure something out and um so a, a, a kind of the, the core family of 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 misfits were kind of shooting ideas and thinking what we could do. And then they say, so, well, oh, you could do a documentary, but it would be just the same, like in another documentary. It's not that interesting. Doing a reality show is doing a reality show. Um, how do we make it something more interesting? And, and um, there was a uh, Andre Betts, who's a super talented editor. He's one of the best in the world. Um, he's done pretty much every awesome Super Bowl commercial that you could ever imagine. <laughs> had this fantastic idea he goes well why don't you take it from the perspective of the ocean you know take it from the perspective of the fish and kind of observe humanity from that perspective and we're like yeah
0: what a great idea
1: and so we said okay well let's still use the real individuals because they're interesting people in themselves and uh and then just kind of layer this storyline the science fiction storyline over it um and so uh Vlad said, OK, um, uh, I want you and Rory to go out there. Rory McKellar, who is a fantastic director, um, and uh, he and I have done a lot of projects together. And uh, and we're like, OK, let's go, to the, let's go to the Arctic Circle and see what we can do. And we had kind of a rough outline of a script. And so we went up there and we were just kind of exploring to see if we could get what kind of content we could get. Now, going up there is not as easy as one might think because one, it's in Russia, but Russia is reasonable en- enough as long as you have a visa to go there. Um, but where we wanted to film in the north is has three restrictions to it. One, it's the um, research base for the Moscow State University. Two, it's in the middle of a nature preserve. Yeah.
0: Oh no! And then
1: three, okay. it's where the Russians do their shallow water testing for all their nuclear submarines.
0: Oh no problem. Okay, all right. Leave it up to you. There we go. Okay.
1: So there was a so there was a lot of like challenge. Okay, hey, it was like this couple of guys who want to go from you know from from the UK and the US and who want to fly in with a bunch of drones and and underwater gear. <laughs> um, but uh thanks to the again like uh fantastic and and uh i don't know how to say it but it it really helps who you know um and uh and luckily alexander is super highly regarded in in russia um and has given talks with vladimir putin putin's a fan of his so i think we were we the access that we were granted was a little bit easier than it would be for most due to that reason. And so anyway, we started filming this project and managed to get some really incredible footage. Um, And I have, uh, we decided to film it over multiple stages um, because we needed seasonal changes. So we filmed in the fall the first time, and then the second time we went, we filmed in the winter.
0: So you decide to film in the winter and there's this picture and you're in what's going on in this gear. Where are are you? Are you getting ready to film a scene? Is that the same scene you're talking about?
1: One of one of the great things as a producer and the joys that I find and I think maybe you find as well is that our office is often really incredible and unique locations. Yes. And that we get to experience things that <laughs> most people will never ever get to see that's right and i have been quite fortunate over you know the many many years to have been to some of these really incredible offices and with these incredible office views but never ever have i experienced something as special and unique as when i was in northern russia shooting this project and the vistas and the things that I saw and got to experience were incredible. Like in this image, these we're preparing to shoot a scene where uh, Alexander, the lead character, has to uh, walk through the forest and across onto this ice field. And um, the underwater tank is quite heavy, so I was carrying it for him in this in this moment. That's why I have it on my back. But uh, the suits. Are incredibly unique suits. They are um, done by a company which normally does their, these suits for the Russian secret service uh, or for the Russian um, uh, like uh, uh, Spetsnaz, which are basically like Navy SEALs.
0: Okay, and these
1: these suits are, uh, and we were able to get a hold of them um, again, thanks to Vlad, who has some very good connections in Russia. Um, and these suits are rated to -100 and that's celsius
0: no okay oh my it's, god
1: they're unbelievable so now at that rating you're quite cold very close to dying but you're still yeah. surviving yeah, yeah. Um, wow you can <laughs> still be very comfortable to -50
0: that's still freaking cold
1: <laughs> we were we were at -20 and like sweating inside of them because they were so warm. We would shoot 12 hour days and have no problem in the middle of the Arctic field, like just sitting, there'd be a, like some snow, a snowbank, and there's no real seats around or all, you know, we did have snowmobiles. So, you know, you, you, somebody else is sitting on the snowmobile. So you just sit in the snow for an hour, two hours and be perfectly comfortable. You never get cold. It's the most incredible bit of technology that I have ever experienced. And you wow. get to be naked in it. It's wonderful.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about this one here. You're working with Rory in this scene. This and where are you there?
1: Rory and I, that's at the Moscow State um, uh, biological center, um, and which normally you can only get to by boat. Uh, but when it's frozen over, you take uh, the Russian... Uh, snowmobile, which is called a Buran, and um, we also took our own snowmobile um, that uh, I drove uh, in the in the camera uh, uh, van from Moscow. We we drove all the way to Saint Petersburg, picked up the uh, the the snowmobile, and then drove it to um, drove it to the north, so that we because the Burans the problem is they're very slow, um, and we wanted to have our own vehicle that could go and do location scouting very quickly and, you know, uh, just have some autonomy. And it turned out to be crucial. Um, because it was, uh, yeah, there was a moment when I had to take, uh, one of the actors had to go back early. And so I had to basically leave. We left in the middle of the darkness and just a little bit of snow falling and then we kind of cut through the wooded area where the station is. And then you get to the water's edge. And then all I remember was total blackness. And the only thing you see is where your headlight is. And then the single track from the day before of where we had come to basically drive to this, you know, little fishing village where then there's a car waiting to then drive you five hours to Murmansk to then fly you to where you need to go. So I go through the darkness and I uh, we managed to find the way. They're just following the tracks and we get there. Um, and then on the way back, the sun was slowly rising and I could just see the total whiteness, you know, the white crisp edge. And I was just had this track in front of me and I was just going flat out as fast as I could on the snowmobile and uh, managed to set the world record for the Moscow State Research Facility. Cause normally it takes about 45 minutes to an hour with the snowmobile to get there. Uh, I managed to do it in 23 minutes.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not um, surprised you and I both like racing. You, and are, so, you- <laughs> and so, but it was,
1: but it was fascinating because I remember when it was dark, you couldn't see anything and you're just following the track. And I was kind of like, I think I know where I am. I kind of have an idea. A few days later, something similar happened, but I had to leave a little bit later. So it wasn't quite in the darkness when I had to bring somebody back to the fishing village. And it had snowed in the night. And so when I come out of the, the the tree line to get onto the ice, there's no tracks, there's nothing. And all I'm thinking to myself is like, if this had been in the darkness, I would have had no clue where I was going. I would have been completely lost and not known where to do it. But luckily there was enough light that I, I knew where the landmarks were and where to kind of point and just hold on for dear life until you got there. Um, so it's a very unforgiving environment. If you make one mistake, then it's curtains.
0: You're nuts. You're just nuts. Oh my goodness. How long did it take you to shoot all these scenes for Aquatilus?
1: Um, we went, we had three shooting, uh, times. The, The first one was more almost just a test to see what can we get? Would it work? What kind of you know, because we're working with non-actors, what kind of performances would we be able to get out of them? Um, it's very, very, you know, challenging also doing it in, because it's all in Russian. It's not in English. I don't speak Russian other than a few phrases. Um, and, uh, Rory doesn't speak any Russian. So that was an added challenge. Um, so that was uh, the, the first test was about 14 days in all. The second winter shoot, um, was, uh, three weeks um, because we also had big location changes we shot in Moscow and in the north Um, and then we did a final shoot a main shoot which was about four weeks Mm -hmm. um, where we got the the brunt of the story and that was again
0: uh, in the fall. I'm sitting here thinking I remember shooting in, in, in Prague and it was 20 below Fahrenheit and the batteries were dying uh, what cameras were you using, and how did you manage the equipment in that? It's really a hostile environment. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's for filming. Uh, that kind of extreme cold is really, really difficult. So how did you manage all of that?
1: Especially for batteries, you're totally right. It's an incredibly challenging environment. Um, so we shot on uh, a Red Dragon. We had these fantastic anamorphic lenses, which were old, old glass, Russian, beautiful, and um funny enough uh, kind of on a side note we we shot with them originally and then we said okay uh just to do the test shoot and then when we went back we're like well let's take some some more modern glass i think it'll be much better and we were shooting with them and the first week we're like this does not look as good this is this is just it just is flat super super flat and so we actually ended up Um, We have an amazing uh, uh, production manager, um, Julia Fruchtenbein. She managed to get new lenses. Her mother picked them up in Moscow, flew to Murmansk, drove five hours. (laughs) I then took a boat all the way to the shore um, for it's another uh, hour and a half of the boat through a storm and picked it up. And we literally, we only lost 12 hours in the entire process. And we had totally new lenses. And and save the look of the film. It was a hard decision to make, but Rory and I, it was imperative because the easier choice would have been to say, okay, we'll just deal with it and fix it in post, quote unquote. But the fact is, it's going to be more expensive in the end to try to fix something like that in post. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's the true texture and visual connection that you're having with your audience member. And so it's as an important, I think, as a, as a producer, you have to be able to take the the, the tough decisions as long as it's uh, helping your story and helping the ultimate vision um, have a better voice.
0: But this is how you and Roy work so well together, you know, because he primarily directs and you primarily produce, right? Am I yes. right about this? It's really hard, and I know it's been hard for me in the past sometimes when I'm directing and I have a producer that doesn't understand the creative, and you know, you hear about those classic arguments between the director's unit and the production unit when you get into, well, that's going to cost too much money or no, we can't wait 12 hours, we have to keep shooting. The difference between what you and Rory have and a lot of other productions don't have is a camaraderie and and understanding, because you're an incredibly creative person, too. And Rory has also produced. So the two of you understand each other's jobs. I think that's just so important. When you're perfectionist, perfectionism is also part of it. You're willing to have somebody's mother fly and drive, and then you're willing to take the boat in the storm to pick up some lenses that are going to make the production look and feel better. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, And that's not as uh, common as one might think, because a lot of times, especially on Hollywood productions, depending on the production, of course, but a lot of times those decisions are based on money and aesthetics and creativity gets thrown to the side. And it's really a shame. It's really a shame.
1: I understand that as well, because, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that we all have to remember is that it's the film business and not the film charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I, I felt as a producer, w- something that was really important is, you know, I started in front of the camera when I was very young. I loved being on set and I ultimately did every job I possibly could at some point I was mm-hmm. thanks to you. I got to do camera uh, and travel the world. Uh, I worked in casting, I worked in grip, in every department that I possibly could ever get exposed to wherever there was an opportunity to do so. I did it. Um, I also worked in finance for a time because I think that's just important to have that understanding and those connections. And uh, all of it ultimately has, I hope, made me a better producer because I can understand when somebody explains something to me from one of those departments, I have some firsthand experience or knowledge within it. So I know whether it's either BS or if it's really something that will make a difference, or if there's some happy medium that one can find. Um, and that is, you know, if you can have that balance, I, I find it really, 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 it's nice to, you know, I've been on sets where, you know, people take a, a role where it's just down to the to the money and they just have zero understanding of how what it takes to tell the story. They just assume it's something really simple, like a puzzle that you put together. You know, it's not. It's an art form, it's a brushstroke. Um and it's a brushstroke from hundreds of people working together in in sync. Um, so you know, it's yeah. I think it's important to get have that diverse background as much as possible, and I I think that's what's super exciting about filmmakers now, is because everything has become um, the technology um, and the barrier to un- entry has become less. You know, you're not only a director, but you're also editing, you're also f- f- filming it. You're sometimes in front of the camera. Um, you know, the the young filmmakers have a better understanding of everything um they so the, so the so the films in the future, I think it will just become always more and more exciting because you know they'll know uh how to push the boundaries
0: and they they take the risks absolutely. Let's finish talking about the technical side, sound and camera and lighting, and then post and managing media, so talk about that some more
1: um so shooting in those cold conditions um, was interesting uh, the cameras held up very well we knew to take extra batteries because your constant your your battery reduction is you know the lifespan is 50 percent, if that right
0: did you keep them in uh, your suits how'd you keep them warm
1: yes so the first ac and and the camera crews each, they would take batteries and they put them under their arms inside and they would just hold onto them inside okay, their and suits. then
0: they're sweating <laughs> so yeah. you, got, you got moisture in there <laughs>
1: It was, it was explosive <laughs> um, battery <laughs> but it was um but it worked and and yeah. um it was it was very exciting and then not only that but we're also filming underwater um under the ice sheet you know the technicalities Ooh. that go into that where you're Ooh. you know you have to cut a triangle into the thing and then have them go under and you know, this, these guys, the underwater team, Alexander and his team were taking risks that are, you know, one of the first rules is that you never, you know, go under the ice without having a, a rope attached to you so that you could, if you become disoriented, well. you know where to go in the back. But it, you know, one of the things that they said, well, it'll be very difficult to get rid of it in post with the rope. So I'll just go without the rope. And we're like, we don't like oh. only under if you feel comfortable and these guys are super pro. I mean, these guys, that they live underwater year round.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, so they, just the thought of it. Just the thought of it makes me claustrophobic. I can't even I can't even imagine doing that. Anyway, go and, ahead. I interrupted you.
1: And, and normally you're really only, you know, it, a, a dive underwater at that temperature is about 45 minutes. And these guys were down there for an hour and a half. Um, I mean, these are tough, tough, strong, you know, emotionally and physically individuals in order to to capture the footage that would, that we, that we needed. It was spectacular.
0: How are you communicating with them when they're over uh, there?
1: So we would, uh we did, we choreographed everything ab- uh, above water and then they had, uh, we Rory would sketch out um, the shots that we needed in the framings. And then, um, we we'll would just leave it to the, to to their talents to and they would go down and they it was incredible and then we would look at the footage uh, Rory and I would look at the footage in the evening and it was always great it was always spectacular
0: did you have a visual on them when they were down there i mean i'm i'm imagining if you're wondering whether or not they're dead down there i mean that's scary <laughs>
1: Um, we did make sure that the camera, uh, the, the camera person always had a rope attached to them. Um, and it was really just uh, Alexander when he was swimming okay. alone under the ice. Okay. Um, so if there were any issues, then the camera person would tug and I was on the other end holding it. And then the, the, the um, follow on divers would go down to try to get um, whoever was having an issue.
0: Talk to me about the drone shots. Did you have any problems with the drone? Uh,
1: we did. Uh, <laughs>
0: That's a loaded question, because I know you did. <laughs> Can you talk about that? <laughs>
1: um, so we had, uh, 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 we lost one drone, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I I was unfortunately at the controls of it. Now we don't know if, if it's for one of two reasons. Um, We believe that it may have been from uh, because the the batteries just died. It literally went from 50% to zero, and there wasn't enough time for the the drone to get back.
0: Yeah, that's what happens Uh, in those extreme weather conditions. You don't get a warning when the battery's going to die. It just all of a sudden says, okay, I'm cold. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And it's gone. Exactly.
1: And it dropped, and unfortunately it dropped into the water, just missing the shore, and it was a high current area. And so... The guys were amazing, they went and spent an hour, two hours under there just going back and forth to see if they could find the drone because there was some really incredible, there was a particular shot that was really amazing. Um, And then uh, when we looked at the playback, because the DJI has, um, uh, you know, you can actually see all the parameters when it's still working on your handheld, actually there was quite a bit of battery still left and it really dropped out. And so we're not sure if maybe the drone was flying higher than it should have and may have been um, uh, kindly removed from the sky because we were, we were checked everywhere we went from Moscow to, to the north, uh, every train station, um somebody from uh, FSB which is the CIA and FBI rolled into one would come and make sure that uh that we were there um and and it was and that yeah. you
0: weren't wandering around spying
1: <laughs> Exactly exactly oh. so we'll never know we uh, it's probably yeah. the battery but it may not have been um so unfortunately we we did lose one drone Um, but our primary drone, that was the secondary, our primary drone, we were able to get some really incredible footage. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, crucial. It was really crucial. I mean, you know, it's difficult when you're having a snow blizzard and you're having a very steady shot and getting orientation when everything's just white around you. Um, it's
0: It's almost impossible. It's really, no, I've driven in blizzards. Uh, where you have a complete whiteout and you lose all sense of where you are. You have no idea what's up, what's down, what's left, right. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, pretty scary stuff.
1: It's like being in a bad relationship.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Neither of us have ever had anything like that. Nobody ever has bad relationships. Well, I like the idea that your key character, Alex, plays a marine biologist who, is entered into by this psyche from the ocean and start seeing things from the POV of the ocean. It's really something completely different. What stage is the film in now?
1: Um, we're in post production now. And, um, you know, it's uh, when you're an independent film, it's not the easiest process. It's a little bit slower when you don't have all the resources one would love to have.
0: How are you handling this quarantine, too? So, where's the editing happening?
1: so uh editing has happened at my place um uh or also um in kiev uh, because vlad uh who's the main visionary of this project Mm -hmm. he's in in kiev um and uh and then rory is in the uk Mm -hmm. and uh so we're all kind of spread out the the wonderful thing about this quarantine is that it's not really that different to how i would be working anyway because you know all the Projects that I, you know, I'm working on are in post anyway. So I'd be sitting in front of a computer. I just happen to be doing it at home as opposed to somewhere else.
0: So what are you editing on? What NLE are you using? And what kind of equipment do you have around you?
1: So for Aquatalis, all the posts, the editing is being done in Avid. Uh, just because it's really for feature film, it is the standard. I. For all the other projects that i do anything that i all the fashion film stuff that i shoot with daniela Madenge or whatever is always premiere anything that i edit personally is going to be in premiere but uh but if you are doing anything of you know real feature feature film status um kind of across the board anyone in hollywood that you deal with it's much preferred if it's an avid we were very fortunate uh, dolby came to us and um, they wanted to do Dolby Atmos for the project and they think it's really an exciting thing. So we're kind of, have been in talks. And they said, oh, so, you know, are you in Premiere? And we're like, no, we're in Avon. They're like, great, so this is, it makes it so much easier for
0: us. Oh, so, really, okay. So you've got all this media, you're shooting, you, you shot on the on the RED using the analog lenses, right? That have been adapted to digital because they have to be specially adapted for that. I really want to see a picture of that stuff. I actually want to try to shoot with it. That would be awesome. And then you're cutting on Avid. What are you using in terms of storage for media and hard drives and all that kind of stuff?
1: Um we use different manufacturers. Um I personally use OWC drives. Um and uh you know, I have I have a lot of them. Um and they're great. They're just super resilient. They last forever. And if there's ever any support issue, which I haven't had, but others have told me that they have an incredible response from the OWC team, which is really rare. I don't think that that you get that from a lot of manufacturers.
0: No, you get one of those recorded messages and you have to dial one, two and three, five times before you finally get to another recording that tells you the office is closed How does it happen at OWC?
1: You know what I actually love is I love, like, um, here, I think I have, like, I have, this is one of the older ones. But I love having this on set because, you know, everybody, whenever I'm shooting something, you know, they're, you know, they're, like, they're, they're used to seeing certain hard drives there. And then they see these and they, like what is that? I want to know that it looks like a spaceship, you know? And so I tell them what it is and they're like, well, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, and so it really is, you know, it, it's, it's funny because a lot of clients for fashion stuff, you know, they don't really know the technology. Everybody in, in the, you know, in the film industry knows OWC or has worked with them or, or um, is looking to work with them. And, but the clients don't necessarily know it. And so they're like, Oh, who is this? They love it. And it's, interesting how like design is really important you know you look at you you know not only having a quality you know uh you can have a great engine in a car but if you don't have a nice design on the outside nobody's going to care about it right and owc done like this really great job of like having this super engine with like a super sexy design on the outside um and uh it's a great combination of the two
0: well, I'm glad you're using OWC drives because they sponsor this show. So it's really oh, nice that dating. we're compatible. <laughs> <That's cute. laughs> this is also a great moment. Actually, you reminded me. I really do need to say thank you to OWC for sponsoring this and for giving me the chance to talk to, to people like you. And before we go, let's touch for just a minute on uh, what you're doing with Daniela and the fashion stuff, too, because that's completely the other side of the spectrum. From winters in the middle of the snow and ice at, at minus 50 in Russia to all of a sudden now, Harper's Bazaar and fashion and all the beautiful people. What's going on with that?
1: Uh so I'm very fortunate to work with an incredible photographer, Daniela Madenge. Um, and she's also an amazing director. Um, and she uh she's one of the top fashion photographers. Um and now like we've known each other for a number of years, and she, you know, started to she's doing more and more film. And uh we love working together. We understand each other very, very well. Um, and so I, I love working on them because they're usually fairly quick turnarounds. They're very easy. You know, it's like beautiful location, beautiful, you know, subjects, beautiful lighting, beautiful music. It's not, it's not rocket science. Um, and especially when you're doing posts, it's really nice to look at something beautiful for hours and hours. (laughs) (laughs) on
0: I love it. Well, yeah. So, uh, Justin, this is this is awesome. This is awesome. I'm glad to see you're doing so many wonderful things. Anything else that you want to tell people about before we go? Oh, where do people go to find out more about you and these various projects?
1: Um, Well, the best place would be to go to MoscowMisfits.com. Um, there's, uh, a website with lots of website things on it, like photos and text, and you could scroll and you can open tabs. It's, it's very sexy. Uh, and, uh, that, that's probably the best place to go then. Or you can go to my Instagram, which is, um, really humbly called be just incredible, uh, and uh, <laughs> there you can follow the adventure. I always like to post my various shenanigans.
0: Yeah, you're always up to something crazy. I love it. Well, congratulations on everything you're doing. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to come and visit on the show. And uh, we're going to be watching. I can hardly wait for Aquatalyst to be finished. Tell all of my friends at the Moscow Misfits hello. Thanks to OWC. Thanks to Justin Thompson, amazing producer, director. Uh, shenanigans all over the world for spending time with us today. And we'll see you very soon. All right. And everybody, remember what I always tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Thanks for watching.